This is the best of daily devotions by Pastor Tim Dodson from Believer's Church in Menominee, Wisconsin. Go to jfbelievers.com for more information. Today we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Now this chapter of the book of John is one of the most important and beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. John chapter 15 is actually my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. It is also one of the most important passages in the Bible to establish critical doctrine on which we base our faith and our walk as Christians. So to ignore the teachings in this chapter is to leave a gap in our theology that will prove to be ultimately fatal. And at the same time, this chapter can be uh, one of the most damning and harshest, harshest uh, passages in all of Scripture, particularly if you're running from God's call to discipleship today. These are the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry, so effectively the gloves were off. It was time for the boys to grow up now and face the music and step up to the plate. Indeed, some of us are forever in class and never on the field. Oh yes, there is a time for maturing and there is a time for growth, for the apostles and for all of us. But there is also a time when school is over and it's time to graduate. So to understand this chapter, as well as really any chapter of Scripture, we must know then who is it being addressed to. This chapter is not addressed to non-believers, nor is it addressed to those who are merely considering a life in Christ. In John chapter 15, our Lord was specifically speaking to his apostles, or at least to the eleven committed ones that remained after Judas had departed. So we need to firstly see, as we begin this chapter, John chapter 15 again, that it was directed to born-again individuals, or at least in the technical sense, they would be in just a matter of hours. What Jesus is going to say herein encompasses the purpose of our salvation on a practical basis. In other words, this is what is supposed to be happening inside of us because we are reborn. What does it mean to live a life of faith? What are the fruits of a transformed life? Well, we know the list, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. So, no life that is void of rebirth is going to produce these elements in any quantity or quality. No life outside of Christ will ever experience this sweet fruit year after year, season after season. But that is actually not really a great concern for many of us because we often produce no fruit at all for the kingdom of God, or if we do, frankly, it's bad fruit we produce. Now, we can casually excuse ourselves in this matter by wholly rewriting the scriptures and conforming Jesus into our image. You know, a picture of laziness and lack of commitment and worldly self-centered comfort. But we often avoid at any cost this personal fruit inspection in our lives presented in this chapter. We are so quick to excuse the fact that we look and frankly act nothing like our Lord and Savior, even though we call ourselves Christians. 
Few men and women are willing to step back and look at their lives honestly and ask, what am I producing? Is it the fruit of a transformed life? Or are we producing the fruit of a worldly life? Fruit that is like bitterness and selfishness, deceit, corruption, anger, gossip, strife. The Bible speaks of all these things as fruit of the flesh. So when we see these things manifest, few of us have the integrity and the boldness to step back and question our own standing in Christ, or perhaps the standing of someone we know, a family member or a friend. It is simply just too much to fathom, to, you know, entertain the notion that we might not truly be born again or that someone that we care about is not. I mean, after all, there may be a lot of religious motion going on in a life, a lot of Christian words and a lot of religious activity. And, and maybe that has been going on for a very, very long time. And we read in Exodus of the fruit of Pharaoh's life, ungodly fruit that poured forth from his life, bitterness and selfishness, deceit, corruption, anger, strife. And you know, God patiently waited for Pharaoh to repent. And again and again, God gave him opportunity and gave him grace. And again and again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Let's face it, for many of us, our story stops right there. We never connect the dots and see the direct application to us and to the world around us. Why can't we make that simple extrapolation that says if we harden our heart against God over and over in such a manner, that He will, as Bible as the Bible so describes uh, His interaction with Pharaoh, that He will eventually confirm our heart in that rebellion. That He will at some point harden our heart just as He did Pharaoh's. I mean, do we actually think that the bar... Uh, is to be held higher for Pharaoh than it is for each of us? I mean, do we believe that God held Pharaoh accountable, but he won't hold us accountable? I often see folks who have become entrenched in their sin, and they repeatedly harden their heart against God's uh, speaking to them about this. And they always ultimately crash and burn because God finally hardens their heart uh, in answer to what they wanted. He confirmed their state of being because they would not repent, they would not turn from their sin. So when they walked away from the church and they walked away from their friends and maybe even from God, now they're angry, they're bitter, they're, they're spitting fire against God's people just like Pharaoh did. Without fail, the people around them, when they're in these states of being, we're shocked. We don't understand what's going on. That's because we never knew about so much that's under the surface, the entrenched marital problems, the repeated porn indulgences, the, the premarital sex, the abuse of finances, maybe, maybe the repeated drug use, or maybe just something as innocent, if you will, and acceptable as things like idolatry and laziness self-preservation, etc., etc. But oftentimes, sadly, I knew. I knew that they had hardened their hearts and hardened their hearts and hardened their hearts until finally God confirmed that decision and the Red Sea closed up over them while they ended the movie shaking their fist at God's people. 
You know, at that point, Pharaoh would not listen to reason anymore because he could not hear or understand such reason anymore. What am I saying? I'm saying that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart because he showed repeatedly that that's what he wanted. I mean, Pharaoh was not different or special, but he was to serve as a warning, not to someone else, but to us here today. That's why it is really not hard at all to see who is next to crash. I need to only note the overt and obvious hardening of a person's heart, the refusal to correct an issue in their life, that sin that keeps coming up and biting them again and again. Now, rarely do you see this kind of thing as I do as a pastor. Yet, if you think about it after the fact, you know, after they're already gone, how often we can recall that their appearance had changed before they left. Their, their demeanor, their interaction with others was amiss. They, they had began to isolate themselves. They began to complain and to gossip. They, they spoke a lot about their feelings and made excuses for their behavior and were becoming increasingly self-absorbed. Scripture progressively became separate from their world and their decisions. You know, it just didn't apply to them anymore. There was a selective application, if any of it applied to them, and they would condemn others on, on a scriptural technicality, if you will, but they would absolve themselves of, frankly, flagrant abuses against God and His grace with an appeal unto a higher code of righteous revenge or, or that they get a free pass due to some perceived terrible wrong that had been wrought against them. Why is it that Jesus asked the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and give it to the poor, but that he's not asking you to let go of all of your material and financial comforts? Why is it that Jesus told the man to follow me is not to have a place to lay your head at night, but he's not telling you that? Why do we read about Jesus often being such an offense, but you know, he never is to us? Why does scripture call him the rock of offense, but we want an easy religion that is nice to everyone? I mean, Jesus would spit fire against those who called themselves God's children, but weren't living as such. Remember, back in Matthew 23, 33, he said, snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Look, we want a preacher even today who is nice and kind when he sees the same thing. Someone should have told John the Baptist, I guess, if all this was true. I mean, Jesus tells us that we must love him more than a husband, more than a wife, more even than our children. So why doesn't that mean us? Jesus says we must give up everything, pick up the tools of our own death to this world, and follow him in all things. But we don't. Why is that okay? That was our daily devotions by Pastor Tim Dodson. To learn more about Tim Dodson or Believer's Church, visit jfbelievers.com.